And if you would, why don't you bow with me as we are approaching the Word of God and ask for His blessing. Father, You are our Redeemer, and we are rejoicing in You tonight for all that You've accomplished. Thank You for redeeming us. Thank You for saving us when we were dead in our sin. Liberating us to a life of worship and obedience as we uh, press forward like Paul toward that great goal of knowing you and of knowing the power of your resurrection and the fellowship of your sufferings. So Lord, we pray that tonight you would bless the preaching of your word and illumine our hearts to receive it and produce the fruit that you intend to see among us. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. Well, it's a joy to be back in Philippians tonight, and if you would, turn to Philippians 3. We will be finishing up this chapter tonight. And as you're turning there, let me just orient you a little bit to where we're at in our study, in the letter as a whole. If you've been with us and you remember that the the bulk of this letter is written to try to get this church in Philippi back on track. Paul loved this church. He loved all the churches, but he he loved this church in particular, and he was writing to get them back on track, get their eyes back on the Lord Jesus, to get them back on his mission. So persecution, you remember, was on the rise in Philippi around this time. And uh, they were tempted to be afraid. They were tempted to stop evangelizing, you know, as the pressure began to mount. And there was also division that was brewing in the church between these two women, these two ladies. They were having a tough time getting along. They were arguing instead of forgiving and reconciling and moving forward together, kind of arm in arm, in the mission there in Philippi. And like we've been learning over the last few weeks, there was a, the, the great threat of legalism. There was a threat of perverting the gospel of grace with human merit. That's what legalism is. And so as we've seen, the bulk of this letter, the heart of it, is to get this church back on track, to get our eyes back on Christ. And so Paul spends a significant portion of, of chapter 2 Unpacking Christ. If the goal is to get their eyes back on Him, um, he spends a significant part of the chapter unpacking Jesus Himself. His example of humility, His example of love for us. He is the greatest example, the transcendent example that the church needs. And we all, at times, need a renewed vision of Christ to imitate. Especially in these times. But as foundational and as important as the example of Christ is, Paul doesn't stop with just giving the Philippians Jesus' example. Right? He gives them other examples, too. He gives them Timothy, his own ministry disciple, as a good example worth following. And not only Timothy, but he also gives them Epaphroditus. He highlights one of their own, a man named Epaphroditus, one of their own leaders, and says, hey, he's a man worth imitating. And then in chapter 3, where we've been over the last few weeks, Paul gives us the very last example of all, himself. And in this chapter, he details out his own life for us, and he really does it in two categories. He tells us how he thinks and how he lives. How he thinks as a Christian and how he lives as a Christian. Why does he do that? Because in essence, he's giving us a template, a template for the Christian life. He's giving us a model to follow, a model to imitate. And again, just by way of review, it starts with our thinking, Paul says. And that's the first part of this template. It starts with how we should think about our lives before Christ, how we should think about everything we did apart from Christ. And Paul says, by example, his own example, that all our attempts to be good, all our attempts to earn God's favor, 
anything that Paul could have boasted in in terms of his Jewish background or his pedigree, all of that is loss. All of our, any, of, any of our attempts to put any confidence in ourselves to think that God loves us a little bit more because of what we've done or not done, all that confidence is actually a false confidence, a loss or a liability, according to Paul. We've got to think like that. We have nothing to brag about before God and have only ever deserved His wrath. And yet, in Christ, we have been given the exact opposite. In abounding measure, we've been given a perfect, pristine righteousness that we could never earn, all because of what Christ has accomplished for us. So Paul says, I count this as loss to gain Christ. And this way of thinking frees us from the enslavement of legalism, of thinking that our performance gives us favor with God. And that's how Paul thinks, and that's the first thought process he wants us to adopt in this template. But he doesn't stop there. He says this way of thinking is a constant way of thinking. It wasn't a one and done at his conversion. This is a constant way of thinking, a daily choice to continue counting everything as loss compared to knowing Christ. He says that in chapter 3, verse 8. That means Paul constantly came back to this reality. He constantly came back to the good news of the gospel, that his righteousness depends on Christ not his own works. He comes back to that every day. Because even in the Christian life, we need to realize that our good works, even post-Christ, they don't keep us in the family. They don't increase our standing before God in any way. Our standing is fixed in Christ, and we are fully loved by the Father in Him. That's the joy of the gospel. And Paul knows that we're all tempted to drift back to these legalistic tendencies. That's what we call them. These legalistic tendencies. So he says this mindset of counting all as loss is a continual mindset. And then last week, most of you aren't here, but last week, this way of thinking also includes how we think about our growth. So not just our conversion and pre-converted life, but also how we think about our growth. Paul goes on in this passage to explicitly tell us that although he's received this righteousness, he's been brought to life in Christ and he's got it, that he has not arrived. He has not attained full perfection. He says it twice in this passage. And he does not expect to in this lifetime. He wants us to adopt this way of thinking too. Because he knows that it will guard us from those perfectionistic tendencies that we all have. We talked about that at length last week, but Paul knows that we sometimes are surprised. We're sometimes overly discouraged when we see sin in our lives. You're like, whoa, like that shouldn't be there. And and sometimes we might think, Am I I even saved if I if I have this, this temptation? I thought I put this to death last week, but here it is again. But we think, we function as though there shouldn't be any sin in our lives anymore if we're growing. But Paul knows that's not a mature mindset. The mature way of thinking realizes that we've not arrived and we won't arrive until Christ returns. Very helpful. But just because we won't achieve full perfection on this side of the resurrection does not mean, it does not mean we can't make real lasting progress tangible progress in the Christian life. We can. In fact, in this passage, talked about it last week, Paul models that mindset too. Paul knows he hasn't arrived, and yet, Paul shows that instead of being passive or lazy, we should think of our Christian lives as an all-out sprint toward perfection. An all-out sprint toward the goal of Christ-likeness, precisely because we can grow in the here and now. We've been enabled to actually know more and more of Jesus and to know the power of His resurrection, to become like Him more and more. And so Paul says, you know, essentially in chapter 3, this is how I think about myself. This is my way of thinking. It's how I think about my life before Christ, my life in Christ. It's now how I think about my growth. 
And I want you, he says, to adopt this same way of thinking. Look in verse 15. This is kind of the tail end of that part. He says, let those of us who are mature think this way. And if in anything you think otherwise, God reveal that also to you. Only let us hold true to what we've attained. But in our verses tonight, in 17 and through the end of the chapter, Paul goes beyond our thinking to our living. He doesn't just want us to model how he thinks or to, to, to pattern our life after he think, how he thinks, but also after how he lives. He wants us to build our lives after his life and, and, and around those like him so that our lives will really count in the here and now. And he wants us to stay in this sort of hot pursuit of the new creation and not to get sidetracked. And Paul knows there's another path calling to us. He knows there's an easy road, or the wide road, if you want to use Jesus' terminology. It's a road full of illicit pleasures. A road that's full of deceptive desires that ends in destruction. And Paul's going to go on in our passage to introduce yet another danger facing this church. And we might call it the danger of hedonism. The danger of hedonism. What's that? Well, the quick and dirty definition is just it's a life that pursues pleasure at all costs. It's the worship of pleasure instead of the worship of of God. And it makes obtaining pleasure our highest aim. It's our greatest goal, or the goal of the hedonist. It's the greatest goal above knowing and trusting and obeying Christ. It's being a, quote, lover of pleasure rather than a lover of God, as Paul says over in 2 Timothy 3, 4. And this is, essentially, there's a lot of ways we could define it if you want to go, go down that, but there, that's, that's essentially what we're getting at, what's, what's being addressed here in this passage, this hedonism. And this, this is alluring to us because nobody likes pain. Right? I don't. We all love to be happy, and understandably so. And in fact... God loves to bless His people. And He loves to satisfy us completely. See, one of the lies of hedonism is that God is killjoy. But David, in Psalm 16, and we could go to lots of examples, David says that in God's presence is the fullness of joy, and at His right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16.11 We were created in the beginning to live in full communion, full joy, to experience the deepest and most profound pleasures at God's right hand. And to experience those pleasures as we trusted God, as we worshipped Him, as we served Him. And that's what we forfeited, by the way. But even in our sinful state, even in a cursed world, God has still packed it full of pleasure. The Psalms celebrate the pleasure that God provides through creation in the beauty of mountain ranges and the grassy meadows, the flowing streams. Israel's feasts were times of joy and gladness as they took pleasure in food and drink. Marriage is created as a pleasing gift. Children are a blessing and a source of tremendous joy. The Bible celebrates human artistry, the pleasures of music, the beauty of architecture, and we could go on and on. The the world is literally packed with pleasure from God for the taking. God is good, and He loves to bless His people with good. He even blesses the evil. But hedonism perverts it. Hedonism takes what God has given 
twists it and exalts it to, its, to the highest place. It worships and serves the creature rather than the Creator. Romans 1. It says we can be happy without God. It tells us to give vent to all our unbridled cravings right now and however we might imagine doing it. So, example. Instead of pursuing or cultivating a faithful, fruitful marriage, a good gift from God, hedonism says get sex now through pornography and masturbation. Instead of enjoying an interesting drama at the end of a productive week, Hedonism says, don't do your homework now, even though it's due tomorrow. Watching Netflix. Keep scrolling social media. Watch that next YouTube video. Get your cravings now, however you want. You deserve it. The call of hedonism is an alluring call. And yet, it is incredibly dangerous to the church. So tonight, Paul's going to equip us to resist, or as he says, to stand firm in this hedonistic culture as we follow his example. All right? So let's look at this text. I'll make a few comments on it, and then we'll we'll jump in. Beginning of verse 17, Paul's transitioning now from saying, imitate my thinking to now imitate my life. He says, brothers, verse 17, join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. Why? For many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly and they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. but, literally, for, so it's another reason. For our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body, our body of humiliation, to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. Therefore, my brothers whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus. Stand firm in this way in the Lord, my beloved. So that whole paragraph is, it's a terrible chapter break, by the way. Um, that whole paragraph is headed toward chapter 4, verse 1. This, therefore, in light of all I've said in the last paragraph, therefore, stand firm. In the Lord. And he says, stand firm in this way, meaning everything he just said about imitating Paul and others. And so the call here is a call to stand firm in a hedonistic culture by following Paul, Paul's example and the examples of, of others. So there's really, I'm just drawing out for our purposes, three keys to standing firm in this hedonistic culture. Three keys to stand firm in this hedonistic culture because we, we're living in one. I don't know if you've noticed, <laughs> but we are living it. This is, this is where we're at. And if you doubt that, pick up a little book by um, Strange New World by Carl Truman. Thank you. Pick that up. It is a great read. Very illuminating if you haven't read it yet. Probably one of the most important books of our lifetime to give us an understanding in terms of the culture and what's going on in our moment and where we came from, how we got here, and where it's headed. But yeah, we are definitely living in that, and so was Rome, the Roman Empire, and a city like Philippi would have definitely had this hedonistic culture all around it as well. So Paul wants the church to stand firm in the midst of this. And he gives us really, I'm drawing out, I'm calling three keys here in this passage. And the first one is this. Pretty self-explanatory, but observe and imitate the spiritually mature. If we're going to stand firm, 
And we've got to know who our leaders are. We've got to watch their life and imitate them if we're going to stand firm in this. He says, verse 17, Brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. So this first call Paul gives here in this section, as we're saying, our first key to understanding uh, how to stand firm is to imitate Paul, number one, imitate him, and then closely watch the lives of others like him. As I'm saying here, we've got to observe and imitate the spiritually mature. So let's look at each of these commands here really quick. All right, imitating Paul. First part of verse 17. First thing Paul says is that we should join together, together, in imitating him. And what he's doing here, you remember this church is a little bit divided. He's calling this whole church, a church that was struggling with division, to come together to follow behind his humble example. And that's the language of this verb. He says, you know, follow, uh, follow, follow me, uh, join together in imitating me is the idea. Become imitators of me, co-imitators. And, and the point here is sort of like, if you think about imagery, Paul is like the tuning fork, you know, and he's, he wants the variously tuned Philippian members to tune themselves to his example together. And as they do that, they'll become unified. They'll stop with their divisions because Paul models this example of how to, how, to, how to bring unity. And then underneath Christ, and as an extension of his example, Paul and the apostles are to serve as our example of how to live. And like we saw last time, how to think. And this is why in this letter to the Philippians, Paul has included so much autobiography in his letter. Have you noticed that? So this is the first time he's explicitly calling on them in this context to imitate him and to imitate his thinking, to imitate his life. But throughout Philippians, he's been giving us sort of first person how he's thinking, what's been going on, how he's processing his life, how he's processing his imprisonment, what he's rejoicing in, what he's not rejoicing in, all those things. And all that is serving as an example. He's given us insight into his thinking, into his choices, into what gives him joy, into what he prioritizes, what he doesn't. And in all these ways, through his writings, Paul and then the other apostles serve as our examples of a a life in progress, of a life pursuing Jesus. And so one basic application here is that we need to know their writings. Does that make sense? We need to know what they've written. That's, that's one of the reasons that we take so much time in, the, in our church to unpack their writings in context so you can understand what they're saying. You can understand how these inspired men thought, how they lived, because they wrote all this down as an example to you and me. They're not a perfect example in the sense that their lives were sinless, but they are an example of what Christ wants, an example of progress an example of real Christianity in the here and now. And so, seeking to adopt Paul's patterns of thinking and living then will preserve you from the allures of hedonism. They'll preserve you from the allures of hedonism. We'll talk more about that in just a second. As helpful as that is, Paul knows that we need real-time examples too, not just him, not just written ones. And so he says we should be observing others. We should be observing other people. And I think in this case, he's talking about people that are in their church. He tells us to keep our eyes, or he tells the Philippians, to keep their eyes on those who mimic the example of Paul and the example of his co-workers that he's trained and he's discipled. So Paul knew that the Philippians needed more than just him. And if for no other reason, then he was in jail, right? A little hard for Paul to get to Philippi, uh, being incarcerated. So he, they, they need others, too, that they can watch and see and kind of come up close to, but who? Paul says that anybody who patterns their life after him is worthy of imitation. In other words, anybody who smells like Paul 
metaphorically. Um, anybody that walks and talks and thinks like him and the men that he's trained, they are the template. Now that really underscores what we said just a second ago, that we need to know Paul's example. Because Paul's life is the standard for all local leaders in a congregation. Paul's life is the standard for all disciples and mentors. Paul's life is the standard that the congregation needs to, to think through as they're appointing people in the church, as they're establishing disciple makers. They need to be identifying people who walk, talk, and think like the apostles. And whoever does resemble Paul, the congregation should zero in on. That's what Paul's saying here. They should take note of them, watch their lives closely so they can become like them. So, if you're thinking, okay, what? give me some examples of Paul's example. What, what are we talking about here? All right, from Philippians 1 and 2 alone. You ready for this? This was like, took me like five minutes. So you can do this in your own spare time. Here's some of the things we learn about Paul. We know that he's, he knows that he's nothing but a slave of Christ. He's not somebody important. He doesn't think of himself that way. He doesn't think of himself as indispensable to Jesus' ministry. He's a slave. And again, as you're thinking about this, think in terms of Paul's life as a template for leaders and people that we should model and mimic. Knows he's just a slave. He's consistently thankful, which means he's not complaining or griping about his imprisonment. He's confident in God's ability to transform the church. He's not wringing his hands in unbelief. He's, I'm, I'm imprisoned. What's the church going to do? How, how are we going to survive? How, is this church going to be okay? He's confident in God's ability to fully transform the church with or without him. But it doesn't mean he wasn't deeply concerned for them. He was. He's confident in the sovereignty of God. He's willing to suffer for the gospel. And he embraces the gospel, he embraces suffering with joy. Okay? Willing to suffer, willing to lay it on the line for the gospel, and embraces that suffering with joy. Again, not complaining, not fear. Although I'm sure he was tempted to complain, I'm sure he was afraid at points. What else do we learn about Paul? He deeply loves the church. Means he's not resentful. He's not licking his wounds. He's not nursing past hurts or betrayals. That certainly happened to him. He regularly intercedes in prayer for the growth of the church. Knowing that God works through the prayers of His people. He loves the glory of God and the advance of Christ's mission, not his own personal ambitions, not his own personal significance. He's not one-upping or story-topping or boasting about his gifts or boasting about fruit. He says he loves the glory of God and he wants to see the advance of Christ's mission. Get this one. He doesn't take personal offense when other pastors sin against him. We're still in chapter 1, by the way, of Philippians. He consistently rejoices, even in really hard circumstances. His life is all about Christ. He doesn't have other obsessions or hobbies that render him unfaithful to Christ in the main areas of his life. doesn't mean he doesn't have interests or things he did, but they weren't these idolatrous obsessions that took him away from the main things. He would rather die so that he can be with Christ. That's, that was his passion. That's where he, actually where he wanted to be. He wasn't pining away for future experiences on this side of the kingdom. Just really hoping that, man, he can just really have that nice steak dinner he was you know, angling for or whatever it is that he might, we might pine away for. You know? He wants to be with Christ. He wants others to experience growth and joy in Christ. And he is willing to inconvenience himself for their growth. It means he doesn't serve on his terms or when it's easy or when it doesn't cost him. 
He invests deeply in other leaders, and he shares ministry freely with them. Meaning he's not territorial about ministry. He's not micromanaging. He doesn't, he's not manipulative when it comes to ministry and who gets to do what and make sure he's out in front and gets the credit. He gives ministry away and he deeply invests in other leaders. He affirms those leaders in his speech. Leaders that certainly had weaknesses. He minimizes their weaknesses. He highlights their strengths. He's not critical. He's not always pointing out what's wrong. Is there anybody like that you see around you in the church? That's the question. That's what Paul's saying. Does anybody smell like that? Again, we're not talking about perfection. Paul himself was not perfect. He was growing. He repented when he fell short. We're talking about mature people, spiritually mature people, who know they've not arrived who know they are trash apart from Christ. Who know their aim in life is to know Christ and to be like Him. And for the Philippians, it was Epaphroditus in chapter 2. And this fellow companion that Paul talks, he's gonna, we're going to learn, learn about him in chapter 4, who Paul calls to reconcile these two women. Possibly even Clement here. Again in chapter 4. And hopefully here at TBC, it's your elders and your pastors, but we don't get an automatic pass. We are compared to Paul too. And it's not just your pastors. Paul doesn't say, imitate your pastors only. He says, imitate anybody that matches the example that you see in us. So this means your disciples, your mentors, your boundless leaders, your other church members outside of Boundless, even some of your peers here in Boundless. Paul says keep a close watch on people like that. Keep a close watch on them, on their lives, learn from them, and follow them. Because those kind of people will help you avoid the traps of hedonism the traps of falling in headlong into this hedonistic way of thinking and living. So, practical thoughts here to help you observe others in the church. Okay? I was thinking through this, and I think it starts with, we've got to confront any pride and self-preservation that says that we know it all. I think it starts there. Confront that pride that thinks I know everything, or the self-preservation that says, like, I can't really show weakness, that I don't know. Or that says, I think I, I should know everything without anybody experience coming alongside me and, and helping me. I think it starts, there's probably a lot more we could say about that, but it starts with kind of confronting myself about, like, why, if I don't, ha- if I don't have somebody that I'm following and watching carefully and closely, why is that? That's a good question to think about and ask yourself. Be honest. And next, I think, practically, just finding some ways to be around people who are more mature, right? Finding ways to be around people who are more mature. So that means, again, just practical thoughts, but just take some initiative after the church services to get to know people. Ask some of your other balance leaders who are more connected what people that you should prioritize getting to know. And start taking initiative, go meet them, introduce yourself, ask them about their lives and how long they've been here, and just start getting to know them. Don't come cold turkey and ask them to mentor you. Just just start getting to know them a little bit. Right? Get on their radar. And then, if you're really smart and shrewd as a serpent, you will make yourself useful to them. Right? So like, Offer to help them in some way, not for pay, but to, to serve them. That's going to get yourself around them. Again, as you're getting to know them, just think how normal relationships work, guys, okay? Relationships 101. We like, 
walk up to some old lady, mentor me, and what can I, what can I cook for you? You know, just like, I don't, I mean, that, that might work. I mean, maybe they'd be like, okay, but probably be better than nothing. But uh, just, yeah, just get to know them a little bit. And then try to, try to find ways you can meet their needs. And then just get yourself around them. And when you are around them, pay attention to how they live. Watch how they interact with other people. Find out how they structure their time and why do they do what they do and how they do what they do and, and what have they learned, which mean, brings me to another point. Don't be afraid to ask questions. Okay? Don't be afraid to ask. And, and ask not just what they do, but why they do it. Why do you do that? Well, what's, what's going on there? Like, how do you, why do you prioritize that, not this? And those questions are, are really, I mean, as I'm kind of on both ends of that, I'm watching people and I'm, and I'm being watched um, at some level, which is terrifying. But at the same time, it's, it's refreshing and helpful for my own life to clarify when people are asking me questions about, like, why do you do that? I don't know. I've got to think through that. You know, because he did it. I don't know. Just like I need to think through it a little bit better. So I think that's that stuff's helpful. Um, so don't be afraid to ask questions, and then find ways to implement things that are good in your own into your own life, right? And filter out the things that are not so good that you see, because that's part of mimicking. That's part of what you like. You're, you're gonna there's gonna be some things because we're all in process that you're not gonna want to imitate, which again gets back to knowing the standard, knowing what Paul is is all about. So find ways to implement the things that are good, meaning like it's just you can just kind of get around people and be an information glutton, you know, and not actually put anything into practice that you're learning from these men or women that you're around. So make sure that you're actually, your life's changing. Your life's, you're implementing the things, that, some of the things that you're seeing that map onto your, your scenario there. And that's some just practical steps and maybe how we would begin imitating others and following others um, in, in the Christian life. But the point here is that Paul's saying that we need to actively learn from and imitate the spiritually mature that are among us. And he gives his own life as the imperfect standard. And this is so important to him because he knows that if we're really trying to be like those that are out ahead, if we're really trying to be like the spiritually mature, we will be preserved from the lies of hedonism. And that brings us to our next key for standing firm. Paul implies that we need to be able to see through the allures of living for pleasure. We need to see through the allure of living for pleasure. While you're writing that down, put the car in reverse for a second and go back to that first point. I'm just going to say this. This is obvious, but you never assume the obvious is that you need this point, the first key here, shows us that you need more than just preaching. Does it make sense? So your, your podcast, you know, the people that are just, they're not involved in a local assembly and they're just listening to podcasts and there's things, they're in dang, this dangerous territory for the lives of hedonism because they're not able to actually see how people are in real time, real situations are putting these things into practice, the sacrifices they're making to follow Christ. No, they don't have anybody to imitate. So I think that's a, that's a very, very important just kind of point there to, to plug in. All right. Second key is that we've got to be able to see through the allures of living for pleasure. And in these next verses, in 18 and 19, Paul tells us why we need to imitate the mature. Because, he says, there are a lot of people out there who live oppositely who live for hedonistic pleasure, and they're tempting us to do the same. Look at, look at what he says in verse 18. We should imitate because, for many of whom I've often told you, and now tell you even with tears, walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their end is destruction, their God is their belly, and they glory in their shame with mindset on earthly things. So in these verses, Paul doesn't just warn us about these people. He describes them. He warns them, and then he describes. He warns us, and then he describes them to us. He describes them as they really are before God. What's going to happen to them? Why does he do that? Well, he does that 
to motivate us to be able to see through the allures of hedonism. We've got to know the truth about this way of living and about what's coming to them in the end. And this will help us discern its lies and resist its, its enticements. And if you want like a, something else to study this week, write down Psalm 73 for another great example of exactly this thing. Psalm 73. So who are these people? Who are they? Well, there's a lot of ink spilled on who these people are and their kind of the background. And sadly, I spent most of my time trying to figure that out this week. <laughs> and uh, it was tough because some people think it's the, the Judaizers that Paul was talking about in previous verses. And in that case, he's using a lot of ironic language like he did in the first place. Uh, that's kind of where I started as I just was working through this passage. But I began to shift and realize, I think these are just more like cultural unbelievers. At, at a minimum, obviously, unbelievers we know, possibly professing believers, but, but believers who are enslaved, not real believers, but professing believers who are actually unbelievers that are enslaved to hedonism. They've actually never bowed the knee to Christ. They're enslaved to their pleasures. Because I think the language here maps onto that better than the, this sort of Jewish background. But if you have questions about that and you really want to know, I'll talk to you about that later. Okay? But if, let me just, let's work through some of these descriptions and I think maybe that'll come out a little bit better. Let's, let's look at a few of these ways Paul describes this group here. And he's describing them so that we see through them, right? We see to what the, the, the end is. Notice he says these people are the majority, okay? They're the majority. He says, for many of whom I've often told you. He said, there's many of them. And that's important. I just want to draw that out because it's tempting to think the majority is in the right, just normally, Right? When we look around, we see so many people living so happily in unbelief. It's tempting to think maybe there's something to this. Maybe I am missing out. Or when we see so many in even evangelicalism that are saying how we live does not matter. And you look at their life and they're indulging in unrepentant sin in this hedonistic way. And they're saying it doesn't matter because I'm saved it's tempting to think they might be in the right. Because it seems like so many people are living like that. And they seem so happy and so in tune with God. But Paul helps us see this is not the case. Numbers, passion, none of that. That, that does not mean it's right. Okay? There are many, Paul says, that are walking in this wide path. He also says they are a danger. These people are a very real danger. Meaning, he says, these, these people are many of whom I have often told you and now tell you even with tears. So he says, I've told you this. I've warned you about these people repeatedly in the past when I was with you and I planted this church. And I'm now telling you about them with tears streaming down my face in prison as I'm thinking about this situation. And he, he's passionate here and, and, and emotional in this warning because they were likely posing some kind of spiritual threat in the sense that they were like authority, like a, they were kind of some kind of authorities or posing like that or posing as a teacher of some way, trying to lead people astray into unbridled sin. We're not sure. There's just not a lot of data we have. But we know that hedonism is dangerous and so are those that peddle it. And this confronts the lie that we often believe, you know, oh, that won't, won't hurt us too bad, you know. Like this hedonistic indulgence, living my life for pleasure won't be that bad. What's wrong with, with getting a little illicit pleasure sometimes? Paul says this is a tremendous danger. And if nothing else, just envision, envision him warning us with tears running down his face. That should get our attention, right? And he says these people actually whether they're professing Christians or not, they actually oppose the cross. They oppose the cross. They are enemies, he says, of the cross 
of Christ. They walk as enemies of the cross of Christ, meaning their lives set themselves up, that's their walk, their lives set themselves up as opposers, as enemies of the cross of Christ. Even if they identify as believers in some loose sense, Paul's saying in reality they are enemies because of how they live in unrepentant, hedonistic sensuality. They hate difficulty. They hate anything that gets in the way of their ease of life. They definitely don't want to suffer for the gospel. They're not willing to do that. They're not willing to inconvenience themselves for the needs of others. They might give lip service to Jesus, but in reality, Paul says they reject his demands of discipleship. And that makes them then an enemy of the cross. Enemy of the cross. Paul also says these people will be destroyed. Their end. He wants us to know where they're going to end. He says their end is destruction. Their end is destruction. It's tempting to think the hedonist is living the good life and we are missing out. Right? But Paul fast forwards us to the end. And he says, eternal destruction awaits these people. When we think about the end, their final destination, it puts everything else into perspective, doesn't it? It's a sobering reality. But we've got to cement this in our minds if we're going to be able to avoid the allure of hedonism on a consistent basis. We've got to know that the end is coming where they are going to be held accountable for boasting in all of their sensuality, for glorying in their shame. Now, I might be tempted to think this is really extreme for somebody who just loves some pleasure, right? But that's until we realize that this is a form of gross idolatry and that these people are actually idolaters, like we once were. They're idolaters of pleasure. Paul says their God is their belly and they glory in their shame. These people do not worship the true God. They have a different God. They worship their stomachs, Paul says, literally. This is most likely a reference to their just sensual passions. That's the God they serve. That's the God they bow down to, functionally. That's the God that rules their lives, the, the God they give their money and time and energy to. It's, it's the God that dominates their thoughts, their obsessions. It dominates all other priorities. And Paul says that's idolatry. That's idolatry. You're not bowing down to Christ. You're not trusting Him and living life in progressive obedience to Him. Hedonism is the worship of the false god of pleasure. And he says these folks are earthly-minded. Comes the last phrase that he describes them with, earthly-minded. He says they have their minds set on earthly things. This final description gives us the telltale sign of somebody who's in this category. Their minds are dominated by what is earthly. And in this case, earthly doesn't just mean like they're dominated by thoughts of Trees, you know, it's, it's, it's talking about flat, the flesh, okay? You can write down Colossians 3, where Paul talks about put to death what is earthly in you, and then he gives this list of fleshly impulses, okay? Their mindset is dominated, enslaved by things like sexual lust, or greed, or preeminence, or anger, or bitterness, or resentment, or jealousy, things like these. It's the mode of their mindset. It's the default setting. It's what they run back to if restraints are lifted. It's what they're never able to gain traction in. Why? Because they love themselves, and they love their cravings. They glory in their shame whether publicly or privately, in their hearts. And the things the Bible says are shameful, they glory in them. 
And that's what it means to be earthly-minded. And this is a sobering list, and it's, it's, it's hard to walk through and think about the eternal destruction of these folks, but why does Paul spell this out in such dark colors? He's spelling it out because he wants us to see the lies. He's telling us this life that's so alluring to us is not all it's cracked up to be. Just ask Solomon in Ecclesiastes. It's a sham. It's hollow at its core. It's only continuing to pervert you. And it's destined for destruction. And knowing this reality, this will help us fight its allurements and to repent when we've been duped at times. Right? So we were delivered out of this if we're genuine believers, but it's still alluring to us today. Even though we may be tempted, though, the Lord will not let us fall headlong into unchecked, unbridled hedonism, we won't be irrevocably tempted in, the, in this world system. Why is that? Because, he says, we don't belong here. We don't belong here. We are citizens of another realm. And that leads us to our third and final key for standing firm. He says, remember, we've got to remember where we belong and what awaits us. Remember where you belong and what awaits you. So after describing this, the, the, the many, he says, but our citizenship is in heaven. Verse 20. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. So really, if you're reading from the ESV and you like to write in your Bibles, you can cross out but in verse 20 and write for underneath it because it's another reason. Verse 20 is another reason why we should imitate in verse 17 grammatically. If you're reading from an ASB, you don't have to cross it out because that's what they've got in there. So one point for NASB. This is another reason why we should join in imitating Paul and others grammatically. It's because this is who we are. This is where we belong. Those guys out in front, those mature spiritual people, they're taking us to the motherland. You know? And we've got to follow them. Not listen to the, the noise on either side. We belong to heaven. We do not belong to the sensual, lustful, rebellious earth that's in mutiny against our king. We have a king returning who will rescue us from this place, transform us into true, glorious beings fit for the new creation. And that's why we imitate Paul and the people like him. These people are on their way to the new creation. These are the kings and queens and governors of the new earth, and we want to follow them there. So that means if we're going to resist the allure of hedonism, we've got to remember where we belong and what awaits us. So let's look quickly at each of these. We'll, we'll, end, we'll end here. Where do we belong? We are citizens of heaven, is what Paul says. Our citizenship is in heaven. So obviously here, he's drawing off this language of the, of the Roman citizen. Philippi was a Roman colony. Citizenship was normal and normal, it was very normal for this group. And so Paul's building on that, saying you've got to remember that you don't belong here in Philippi. You don't belong in America. You don't belong in Virginia. You belong in the new creation. You're a citizen of heaven with all of its rights and privileges. 
And the glory of this is if you're sitting here and you're saying, I'm a hedonist and I'm destined for destruction. I live my life for pleasure. You know what you do? You turn to the Christ that Paul has just talked to us about, who's earned your righteousness for you, who can wash you, the King who can liberate you, the King who will come alongside you in humility and help you turn from your hedonism to true life. What a King. The citizenship is free in this kingdom. You become a citizen of heaven by trusting the king of heaven who has died for you. And you're united to him. We're citizens, we become citizens of heaven, we are citizens of heaven through Christ, union with him and his work, not ours. What glorious news that is. But it's important, this language is important because it reminds us that we are living in a foreign land. It reminds us that we are ambassadors from another land. Here. The citizens of another place here in enemy territory. The church is a colony of heaven. It's a colony of heaven on earth here in the local church. And we want to behave, like Paul says earlier in this letter, behave like citizens Worthy of the gospel of Christ. Chapter 1, verse 27. Same idea. And this behaving like citizens looks like kind of where we started in our announcements. It looks like planting more gospel churches in dark places like New Orleans and and all over the world. Colonizing earth with heaven's kingdom. Now, don't misunderstand when it says that we're citizens of heaven as though this, I've said this earth is not our home, and I've tried to be clear in the language I've used, because it kind of is our home. It's our true home when it gets remade. It's been hijacked in the meantime, and we are waiting on the return of the king. Notice that language. We're eagerly anticipating him to come down from heaven. Here. And remake all things, and in particular what Paul draws out is our personal transformation. We've got to remember not just where we belong, that we're citizens of heaven, but what awaits us, which is total transformation in the new earth. Our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, From heaven, we await a Savior. That's where He's coming from, but He's coming down here. And He's going to transform our lowly body to be like His glorious body by the power that enables Him even to subject all things to Himself. That weak, poor, suffering little church is getting trampled by all the kingdoms of the earth right now. We raised incorruptible glorified, and we will put our feet on the necks of our enemies. We will be transformed into something more glorious than we could ever imagine, into the likeness of Christ's glorious body. That's what awaits us. That is our destiny. We will have a body, an existence, a physical body, fit for an eternal new creation that's fully able, get this, fully able to enjoy all of God's good gifts without turning them into idolatry. We will have a capacity for joy and for pleasure that we cannot even dream about right now, a satisfaction, a fulfillment in God and in His new creation via the resurrection and the glorification that we await. And if that seems 
too outstanding. It's, he's going to do this work by the power that enables him to subject all things to himself. His power is limitless. So, why does he bring that in front of us? I mean, that's the, our glorious hope, but how does it affect hedonism? Well, again, when you remember sort of the positive example of the negative example, you know, like the negative is like, whew, they're going to they're gonna be destroyed. And the positive is, wow, we're going to inherit all this? We can make sacrifices now to inherit that then, right? I used to teach children's church, so I would ask the kids, I'm going to give you, a, I'm going to give you an experiment. I'm like, okay. So I want you to pretend. Like, I'm going to give you a choice. Would you choose, there's a plane, private jet, you know, you can, it's going to give you everything you want on that plane. There's video games. Play as much as you want. You eat as much candy as you want. You can eat as much, whatever you want. You know, you get your own. I try to think of all the things, you know, the kids like. Dino trucks, Paw Patrol, you name it, you know. And they're all, like, wide-eyed on a plane, like, this is going to be amazing. I said, or, you know, you can pull up in a TCS van. You five that know what I'm talking about, you're like, oh, no. (laughs) With, like, 100 kids on there, and they all stink, and you're going to have to ride for, like, three days, no food, you know, no AC, it's middle of summer, it's going to be hot. It's dusty. Which one would you pick? All the kids are like, the plane, you know. <laughs> and I said, well, you didn't ask me a question. You didn't ask me where they were going. And they were like, uh-huh. <laughs> and I would say, the plane is going to land in the Sahara Desert, and it's going to drop you off to die. <laughs> I said that. Children's ministry was intense when, uh, when I was in there. It's an illustration, okay? They were like third and fourth grade, okay? It wasn't like the toddlers, okay? But then I said, you know, the, the bus, you get the idea. The bus is going to Disney World, you know, and, it's, and, and they're just like, oh, can we change? Can we change? You know, because they, they want, the, the end makes a difference. So it would be the height of folly the height of folly for us to think that we're missing out because we are are following Christ and we're suffering now because what awaits us is a glory that we cannot imagine. And so does that mean we're not going to struggle with these hedonistic impulses? Of course we're going to struggle with these things. We live here and we're not fully redeemed. And if you're struggling with something, you feel dominated, you want to talk about that, please come talk to us. That's why we're here as a church. That's why the church exists, is to be the means of Christ to help liberate people from that way of destruction and death to the way of Christ. And if you feel like, like we said, that you're just completely enslaved and you think, I don't, I've never been, I've never experienced what you've described, you can tonight. And we would love to walk you through that. The Lord is saving people. Um, as we speak, the church is here to help. So don't be so proud that you won't seek help. Okay? It's my only request. Because we're all here. All right? And we're going to end here. But uh, one more plug. Talking about living as citizens worthy of the gospel. If you want to buy a t-shirt, we'll throw the, we'll throw the, um, what is it, QR codes, what they're called? We'll throw that thing back up there. And, uh, And you can do that. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for the the profound privilege of being a citizen of heaven. It's so humbling to think that you have given us that citizenship free of charge through the faithfulness of your son, Jesus, and that now we can await his return with eager anticipation. Not in fear of judgment because of our sensuality, because that's been forgiven. 
Do we still struggle? Yes. But we want to be like you, and we want to see you return. We want to see you make all things right on this earth. And yet we want to live as citizens worthy of the gospel. We want to see um, heaven's ways permeate earth as we suffer, as we lay our lives on the line. Lord, thank you for helping us do that day in and day out through the ministry of this church. And we pray for ministries like Omri's. That's going to New Orleans in the midst of a difficult place, but probably full of your elect that you have destined to save through their ministry. And so we pray that you would do that work. We pray that you would help them raise money. And more importantly, Lord, the money's not an issue. We pray that you would equip them spiritually and just help them to count the cost and know what they're getting into as they go there and to be faithful and um, depend on your spirit and his power and working through your word to redeem sinners and give them this hope, transfer them from the kingdom, the domain of Satan, to the kingdom of your beloved Son, make them citizens of heaven. We pray it in Christ's name. Amen.